0: Um, I've given this message a a title. It is uh, A Tale of Three Kids, Impatience, Mistreated, and I Want It Now. And that's the theme and the subject that's before us as we look at what happens in Genesis chapter 16. Now, between chapters 15 and 16, there's a 10-year gap of time that Abram and Sarai are now in the promised land and waiting for the promises of God. And Abraham is growing. He's growing in his faith day by day, in his relationship with God. He's moving forward spiritually. He's walking in God's calling and God's purpose for his life, patiently uh, plugging away and just growing in his faith. This past Sunday night, um, around our, our dinner table, one of my kids um, just asked a question. They just asked me, Dad, what was it like to do two services on Sunday? And we began just talking about that, and the Lord really kind of took over the conversation. And, um, and, and we just, for, for quite a while, just really started talking about spiritual things. And over the course of the time, my oldest daughter uh, said, she said, you know, Dad, it probably would really stink to be one of the people that Jesus rose from the dead because they saw heaven and they were in its glory and then all of a sudden they're ripped out and they have to come back to earth, you know, and then live out, you know, the rest of their earthly life. And that must've been extremely challenging for them. And my response to her was yes and no. On the one hand, yes. I mean, who wants to be ripped out of heaven to come back into earth? But I said, on the other hand, they had an interesting privilege that I wouldn't mind having, if the Lord willed it. And that is that they got to see the prize. They got to experience what it is that life on earth is all about. They got to see the finish line and really understand the context through which every experience that we go through on earth is lived out. And I said, everyone in Scripture that had that opportunity, we know that Paul was caught up and then came back, And there were others. Everyone who had the opportunity to see that, they lived their life with a different kind of a passion. They lived with a different type of a purpose. They lived with with more zeal than they did before they had it. Because now they understood why they were living this life and it caused them to serve with uh, with something more than what they had before. And then my wife said, it's kind of like if you were playing in a game that had an audience, you know, people in the stands, but then you were taken out of the game and you could only watch. You know, it's certainly a lot easier. You're no longer straining uh, being in in the contest, but there's something inside now that you're not in the game anymore that you wish that you were. And I think that the moment we see heaven, there's gonna be two things that happen simultaneously. There's gonna be absolute bliss and deep regret. And both of those things are going to hit us at once. Bliss, of course, because of where we are and what we're doing. But regret, because we're all of a sudden going to realize the opportunity that we had while we lived on earth, and it's going to be very clear to us the time that we wasted, the things that we gave ourselves to, what we could have done instead of what we did do. All of those things are going to become very real in that first moment that we see heaven, and we're going to wish that we knew now what we will know then and there's going to be that realization and so there's a privilege involved in it and and so then my kid said well why doesn't everyone just get that experience then why doesn't god just let everyone see heaven and then they would live much more effectively on earth and i said well i don't know i wish that he would but i imagine that it's probably a little bit like what jesus said to thomas after the resurrection And Thomas said, I won't believe unless I put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side. Then I'll believe. And Jesus appeared and said, Thomas, do as you said. Put your finger, put your hand. And then Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response to Thomas was, he said that you believe because you have seen. But blessed are those who having not seen, believe. And I believe that's the reason why we don't see on this side of eternity what it is that awaits us. But for those of us that can see it in the Spirit, for those of us that can comprehend what the Word of God says and take a hold of it by faith, let it be for us a drive that we might live out the purpose that God has called for our lives and that we might run this race knowing that everything that we do here counts for them. That was Abraham. Ten years of just plugging away, but plugging away with purpose plugging away in the calling that God has for his life, growing, moving forward, making the most of his time. And he's not done. He's not done growing. He's not done learning. And he's not done making mistakes, as we see in our study tonight. And thus we have the tale of these three kids, impatience, mistreated, and I want it now. And so we begin in chapter uh, 16, verse 1, and notice what it says. It says, Now Sarai... Abram's wife, bear him no children. Now, we already learned back in chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarah is barren. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened, or listened, to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. So we're told here, at the onset of this, that Sarai, who has now dwelt in the land with Abram for ten years, comes to a point in her life where she, at the age of 75, which she would be here, and Abram at the age of 85, that she begins to grow impatient, and and Sarai is impatient in our character studies tonight, that she becomes impatient in waiting for the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham and to her uh, now 10 years ago and that they are waiting for. And in her impatience, she decides, which is not an uncommon decision that people make, to take things into her own hands a little bit. That God needs to get the ball rolling, that he's not moving according to her time frame. And so she's going to take action and she's going to make things happen herself. She's going to force, if you would, the hand of God to fulfill his promise by the means of her own intellect and her own energies. And thus Sarah comes up with this idea that turns out to be a huge mistake and a huge burden both for her and her family and the future of her descendants because of her impatience. Now, as we look at what happens here in this text and the things that are laid out for us, giving us the background, we see that there were three factors that led to the decision that was motivated by impatience in Sarai. The first thing that led to Sarah's decision, this bad decision, her impatience, is that she took her eyes off of God and she placed them on now. Notice what it says there in the verse. It says that in verse two, it says, "And Sarai said unto Abram, "Behold now." She put her eyes on the present circumstances. And she projected her future situation based upon what she could see right in front of her in the moment. And it's always an error when we do that. Anytime we make assumptions about what things will look like based upon the circumstances that are, we're in a dangerous and vulnerable place. I can't help but think of Peter, the apostle, in this situation when he saw Jesus come walking on the water. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if that be you, then bid me to come out on the water with you. And Jesus said, come out, Peter. And so Peter took the step to his credit. He did something that was scientifically impossible because he believed the word of Jesus. And he began walking on water. And I imagine that was quite a thrill to be disobeying the natural laws of science and walking on water. But all of a sudden, as he was out there, he beheld now. And he looked around and he saw the waves that were still rising up, and he looked down and he saw the water and his feet standing on it, and he came, became conscious of the present circumstance that he was in, and he thought, well, this is impossible, I can't be doing this. And he immediately began to sink once he began to consider the circumstances that he was presently in. And he cried out quickly, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabbed him by the hand and picked him up and then brought him back to the boat and said, why did you doubt? See what happened. Peter began to look at the circumstances that he was in instead of the hand that he was in, and he immediately began to sink. And that's what Sarai does in the story here. She says, I'm 75 years old. We're living in a strange land as strangers dwelling in tents. Nothing is happening. There's been no movement. Nothing but time is passing us by. And she began to project the future circumstances based upon the present situation. Listen, church. Now is never the outcome. It's only one step along the journey. The circumstances that you find yourself in right now are not telling of what god is going to do one week or one month or one year from now he says i know the plans and the thoughts that i have towards you thoughts of peace and not for evil to bring you to an expected end he has an expected end for every one of us and our current circumstances do not tell the full story of what god is doing or how he's going to get us where we're going and thus we cannot look at now and then make assumptions about the future. Sarah does it, and it's the first factor that led to her error. The second factor that led to her error is that she accused God of withholding good. Notice what she goes on to say as she talks to Abram. She said, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. Now what this is, is an accusation against God, accusing God of holding something back from her, Instead of trusting God in the situation that she's in. God is keeping me back from this. God is angry with me or there's some problem between me and God. And so God has restrained me in this whole thing. And it's his fault of this situation. And so we've got to take things into our own hands. She began to accuse God of things instead of trusting in God psalm chapter 84 verse 11 says to us that god will withhold no good thing from them who walk uprightly god does not withhold good from his people he's not a restrainer keeping us back from achieving something that we want or something even that he's promised or called us to he doesn't restrain if god restrains or delays because of his timing and his plan It's because he's working out other things behind the scenes that we can't see presently, or that something that we're longing for and waiting for is not something that's good for us at present. Because he doesn't withhold any good thing from those that walk uprightly. So if he withholds in his timing, it's because it's not good for us at that present moment. And what we're called to do is not accuse God of some withholding. The blessing biscuit that he's saying, now jump higher, bark louder, pray longer. That's not the idea. But he's got perfect timing and he's good. He knows what he's doing. The truth is in this whole situation is that God is orchestrating a whole bunch of things and he's working behind the scenes with calculated exactness. He knows exactly how he's going to fulfill this promise. But if you and I begin to doubt God's goodness... And to accuse him of restraining or withholding, when in fact he is working, then we're going to fall into the temptation to grab the wheel. Well, God, you've got an evil intention for me, and I know I can do better for me than you're doing for me, so I'm going to control my own destiny. And we take the wheel. Nothing more dangerous than that. My 16-year-old has her learner's permit, and I had to do that once <laughs> so far. Grab the wheel. No, no! <laughs> you know, And it was to the saving of the car, for sure, <laughs> You know that I did it. But when we do it to God, it's to our own detriment. He's in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. The third thing that Sarah does, the third error that she makes in this, is that she made decisions for her life from a place of discouragement. Notice again that it says, after they had dwelt in the land for 10 years. She's growing impatient and she's discouraged about the fact that it's taking so long for the promise of God to be fulfilled in her life. Now, ten years, from eternal, eternity's perspective, is a blink. It's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. But ten years from an earthly vantage point is an eternity. That feels like forever when you're waiting for something to happen and it seems like nothing is. And so Sarah's becoming discouraged. The other thing that I think was a huge discouragement to Sarah in this whole instance, is that little thing that it says there at the end of verse 2, where it says that Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now, first of all, I believe that this teaches us a very important principle, men. Don't listen to... No. (laughs) This is the second time that someone got in trouble by listening to their wife. I'm just saying... (laughs) yes i know that makes good humor but in all seriousness a little bit later on god is gonna say to abram listen to your wife (laughs) and in the bible wisdom is always given in the feminine always in wisdom is always a her has the female pronoun to it and god has given to our wives an incredible wisdom And I know that I have been saved many times by listening. So that isn't what God is is saying here, although it does sound kind of funny that he got himself in trouble for doing it. But the real issue here is that he listens to his wife, but he doesn't listen to her heart. There is no woman on the face of the planet that wants her husband to go into another woman. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the reason, And although this was something that was culturally done in this type of circumstance in those days, there's never the heart of a wife that wants this from her husband. Sarah, at this point, she's feeling inadequate. She wants to give Abram children, and she feels like she can't give it to him, and then she's discouraged because she feels inadequate. She also is carrying the reproach of being barren. And that society, to be barren, you were looked upon as that you were cursed. Something was wrong with you. In fact, when it tells us, we're going to see in just a moment that Hagar, the the servant girl, is going to despise Sarai after she conceives, that word despise means look at her as though she was actually cursed. And she's carrying this reproach within her. And her hope is deferred. She's waiting for something and it's not happening. And what she's looking for from Abraham at this time when she asked for this is not a Okay, that sounds like a great idea, honey. You know, I've been hoping you'd ask me that actually. That wasn't what she was looking for. What she was looking for is no, Sarai, you're my wife. You're the one that God has promised. You're the one that's been with me in this journey. You were with me in Egypt. You're the one that God is going to fulfill this promise to. That's what she was looking for. What she got was all right. Good idea. Good plan. And so Sarai is discouraged in this whole thing, and thus it leads her to make a bad decision. Notice what it also says at the end of verse 3. It says that she gave her to her husband to be his wife. The idea is that she gave her up. And in my mind, I just took out the word her. She gave up. There was something inside of her. Her faith at this point lapses, that the promise of God is not going to come through for her, and she gave up in her discouraged state, and thus she says this to Abram. Abram does it, and she makes an extremely bad decision. Culturally acceptable, but biblically forbidden. Now, the whole thing could have been averted if they had just read the first four words of the chapter. It says, and Sarai, Abram's wife. And that should have been the end of this whole conversation, this whole issue. But things get real complicated when discouragement sets in. The story that's told of when Satan held a garage sale, and in his garage sale he was selling all of the tools of his trade, all of the instruments whereby he destroys the lives of humanity. And so he had these bright and glistening things. He had alcoholism and drug abuse and prostitution and covetousness and money love. And they were so polished and shiny and people were coming around and, and they were marveling at all of the things that Satan had and that he was selling. And so, oh, look at that instrument. Look at the lives that, that have been destroyed, the power of those tools. And, and behind Satan, behind the table, over in the corner there, there was this dusty old thing that didn't look like much that was just leaning there in the corner. It was just kind of dirty and ratty and even a little bit broken down, a well-used thing. And somebody saw it there and said, hey, what is that thing over there? And he said, oh, no, 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 that, that's not for sale. Pay no attention to that. And they said, well, what, what is it? I mean, come on, that, that, what is that little thing over there? And he said, well, he's like, all right, I'll tell you, but I won't sell you. He said, that is my most precious and most prized instrument that I have. That is the thing that has taken down more, that has, ab- that has done more damage to more lives. I have made more progress in my plans with that little instrument than with any of these other things, and I'll never give it up. It's my favorite instrument of all. He said, so, well, what is it? He said, it's discouragement. If I can use that tool on someone, and it's a quite an easy tool to get in. I know how to use it so effectively. But if I can use that in someone's life and in someone's heart, and I can effectively cause that to sit in their life, and I can get someone discouraged, what it does for me is it pries open the door for me to use almost any other of my instruments that I want to. It holds the door open for me to do whatever I want within that life. You know, that's a silly story, but there's much truth in it, isn't there? It's when we get discouraged... When something makes us doubt the promise of God, when we think that He's against us in some way or that we've sinned ourselves out of His promise, when we become discouraged, it becomes very easy for us to fall into some other temptation that will ultimately take us down. And that's what happens to Sarai here. She becomes impatient, she's discouraged, and she makes a bad decision something that she'll regret very nearly into the future. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 4. And so he went in unto Hagar, and she did conceive. And when she saw, that is when Hagar saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So her attitude towards Sarai changes once she realized that she conceived, and she looks upon Sarai as though she's cursed. It strains their relationship, as of course you would expect. And Sarai said unto Abram, because of this, My wrong be upon thee. Abram, my sin, your fault. That's what it means. Ay, ay, ay. I'm going bowling. <laughs> you know. It's funny again, but it's not the whole story. Yes, she is saying, My wrong, your fault. But what she's also saying in this is, My wrong, you fix it. She's saying, my wrong, I've blown it, I've made a mistake, I made an error on things, but now I'm looking to you to cover over the sin that I have made. I need you to make this right because it's not in my hand or in my power to fix it. And this is very fair, and in fact, it's actually quite beautiful what's going on here and what's going to take place in this whole thing. Because if you recall, ten years ago, the exact opposite happened. Remember when Abram lapsed in his faith? Remember when he lied and Sarah was kidnapped and brought into Pharaoh's harem? He made a huge error and brought shame upon the whole tribe, and she covered his sin. His wrong was upon her, and now she's simply coming to him and saying, hey, look, I've blown it, now you return the favor. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, if a man or a woman be overtaken in a fault, Then you which are spiritual ought to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Part of the ministry of being married to another person is that we are there to cover over their sin when they blow it and make a mistake. We're to do it with a spirit of meekness because of our spirituality. We're to recognize the weaknesses in our spouse, and rather than exploit those things and use them to shame them, were to cover over them in a beautiful covering. Sarai had done it for Abram. Now Abram does it for Sarai in this instance here. He replies to her. He, she says, my wrong be upon thee, for I've given my maiden to thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes, the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said unto Sarai, behold, look. The maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her face. Which is probably exactly what Sarai wanted. I want this woman out of the picture now. And she gets her way. Hagar runs away from the whole thing. The thing that blows my mind in all of this is, isn't it amazing that the thing that Sarai so desperately wanted just a couple of months ago, now she wants completely out of her sight. It's a lot like us, isn't it? Sometimes we want something so bad that we'll do whatever it takes in order to get it. And so we manipulate and we twist and we work the angles and we cause the outcome to be as we would will. But then we get what we want and no sooner do we get it, but we hate the thing that we got. We see it for what it is. We start to understand the reason why God hadn't given that thing to us yet, or at least in the way that we thought that he should or the timing. And we want the thing gone that we wanted so desperately in our life so, so, so soon before. What I have learned, and I hope that we are learning together, is that we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. Is there anyone that can amen that? You know, I know that I don't know myself as well as the Lord knows me. And many of the things I think that I want, if I were to have them, I'm sure I would come to the conclusion that I don't really want those things. And what I'm learning, and I hope we're learning, is that we can trust God for the things that are and the things that aren't in our lives. That he absolutely does know what's best for us, and he withholds no good thing. Some people are happy when they get what they want. Other people are happy when they want what they get. God give us to be the latter. That we would be wise enough to accept what we have or what comes, as the will of God for our lives, because he is working all these little things out. I want her out, and so she goes. And so we see impatience. Sarai, her haste, and what she does in her impatience is that she makes a big mess and accomplishes nothing. She took it into her own hands and got nothing for it. Now the narrative moves in verse 7 to our second character, which is mistreated, as we look at Hagar now. After Sarai deals harshly with her and and Hagar leaves and flees from from Abram and Sarai, it says in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. There's three things that we see here in this verse. We see the angel of the Lord, we see a fountain of water, and we see a path that leads to Shur, which is Egypt, back to her home. Now, this is the first time that we see this phrase that will come up often, this phrase called the angel of the Lord. And what this is, is this is an appearance of Jesus Christ in some form in the Old Testament before he came in his physical form later on, you know, in in the New Testament times. And so God comes to Hagar and meets with her in this situation. And notice that he meets with her by a fountain of water. And I think this is beautiful. Because this won't be the last time that God meets an outcast, downcast woman by a well. You know the story when Jesus met a woman of Samaria in Samaria by Jacob's well and introduced himself to her there. A scene very much like that taking place now in the Old Testament as God comes to this woman who's been afflicted and he meets with her in her affliction And he comes to her. Now, a fountain of water in the Bible or a well in the Bible is always a place of satisfaction or a place of refreshing. And what we see in Hagar and what she's doing here is that she's seeking satisfaction. She's afflicted. She's discontented. She's got problems in her life. And so she runs from her problems, finding or looking for satisfaction in going back to her old life now Hagar knows the Lord we're going to see that because of the interaction that she has with him and her obedience to him Hagar has a relationship with God she's come to know Abram's God but in her affliction she becomes discouraged and she runs away from her problems and she says I'm going back to my old life and that's where I'm going to find the satisfaction that I'm looking for so she's going back to Egypt in this whole thing the problem is you can't go back once you know the Lord. And if you've ever tried to go back once you know the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hagar's mistake in all of this, this mistreated woman, is that she's fleeing the will of God, and she's fleeing the place that God has put her to accomplish his work in her life, in order to find some relief from the affliction that she's going through at present. And so she says, I'm going back. I'm going home, back to what I know. There's a great song by an artist whose name is Sarah Groves. And I I love her poetry. I love her music and the things that she writes. And she has a song that the words are are etched in my mind and they come in often to me. And the the song is painting pictures of Egypt. And she says in that song, she says that I'm painting pictures of Egypt in my mind and I want to go back, that's what she says. Because the future seems so hard and I want to go home. But here's her conflict. She says, but the places that I have been to in the past cannot hold the things I've learned. And those doors were closed off to me while my back was turned. The places I have been to, the life that I came out of, cannot hold the things that God has placed in my heart now. It would be too small. I wouldn't be able to live in that context, having what I have and knowing what I know. And while I wasn't looking, those doors were closed, and even if I want to go back, I can't go back. Sometimes the things that we go through in our life, because we're mistreated, or because of just some affliction that comes from whatever source it comes from, they cause us to want to retreat, to draw back from God and go back into old things. The problem is you can't go back and have contentment, the thing that you're seeking for. Because you have too much of God to enjoy what that life holds to be satisfied in it. And so she tries to do it, but she can't find it. And so God comes to her. And notice the interaction now in verse 8. And so God says, Hagar Sarai's maid. Now mark that in your Bible right away. When God comes to her, he doesn't ask her what her name is. <clears throat> he doesn't wait for her to say, who are you? He introduces himself to her by giving her her name he says hagar sarai's maid." now that's amazing that's remarkable not only does he know her name he knows her job he's got her job title you say why did god approach hagar and, and 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 introduce himself to her in this way god is doing with hagar what he always does when he comes to you and i i mentioned it on sunday he's giving her perspective The whole first part of this is God just giving her a clear vision of what's going on in her life at this time. And he says, listen, this is who you are. You are Hagar. Hagar means, by the way, flight or fleeing, which is exactly what she's doing. And you are Sarai's maid. And there's great insight in this right off the bat that God shows her who she is. Do you know that the reality for you and I is that you are and I am who we are? That's the bottom line. You are who you are. And you are where God called you to be, and you are what God called you to be, and you can't change it. And here's the problem with fleeing the will of God because you don't like the current circumstances. You know what the big problem is? Is that you can't get away from you. And the issue so often behind the things that we suffer is not the circumstance, it's me, it's you, it's us. And you can't get away from that. So you can run, you can change your circumstance, you can change what things look like around you, but you can't change you, and you're the one that probably caused the problems or you're the reason for the problems because God's dealing with something in your life or mine. Hagar, Sarai's maid, that's what you are. That's what I've called you. That's where I've called you to be at this time in your life. Notice what he then says. Whence camest thou and where will you go? Where have you come from, and where are you going? He calls her to look at the big picture of her life. Where are you coming from, and where do you think you're going to go now in this entire thing? Can you see the situation as it is? And then notice Hagar's response. And she said, I flee. I, Hagar, (laughs) I am doing what I do. I am running from my problems because I don't like them, and I want to get away from them. And I am fleeing from the face of my mistress. Why, God would come to you and I, are you at the bowling alley right now? Why are you on the internet again? Why are you still carousing on Facebook and going around hour after hour? Why are you doing the things that you're doing right now? Well, God, I'm doing this as an outlet because I don't like what regular life looks like when I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. God often does this when he comes to a person who is not where they're supposed to be. He says, where are you? What are you doing here? Where are you going? Elijah became discouraged and he ran to Mount Sinai, 350 miles on foot. He said, if there's any place that God will meet with a man, it's going to be Mount Sinai. And he went up and he found the place, the cleft of a rock. God did meet with him there. God came to Elijah. You know what God said to Elijah? He goes, what are you doing here? You're 350 miles outside of my will right now. Why are you here? And Elijah goes, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts and everybody else has forsaken you, but I have been faithful and I even I only am faithful to you, God. Everyone else has forsaken you and now they seek my life to kill me like the rest of them. (laughs) And then God says, all right, calm down. Let's try this again. What are you doing here? He asks him the second time. And Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. He gives them the same spiel over and over again. Okay, and God just kind of goes, all right, let's snap out of this. Put your big boy pants on i called you to sit in the big chair. Go back. Go home. Do these things. And he gave him a list of things to do. You're going to anoint Jehu. You're going to anoint Elisha to be the prophet when you come to be with me in about 10 years. And, you know, he gave him this whole list of things that were going to happen in his future. But you know what I love about the contrast between Elijah's meeting and Hagar's meeting with God? Elijah gave God this whole load of hogwash about being the only one left and nobody else loves you. Hagar tells him straight. Hey, I'm running from my problems because I don't like them. And God goes, oh, I can work with that. That's refreshing. Psalm 51, verse 6 says that God desires truth in the inward parts. God is under no illusion that you and I are going to do everything perfectly. And God can't be deceived by the stupid stories that we would give to our parents or teachers or bosses. He knows exactly what's going on in our life, and the quick way through something is just be honest with God. That's what Hagar does, to regret it. I'm running away from my problems because I don't like them. And I love what God says. He goes, oh, let me help you get back to Egypt. Here's $20 and a loaf of bread. You No. God doesn't capitulate. Notice what God says. Verse 9. The angel of the Lord said unto her, return to thy mistress and submit yourself under her hands. Go back and submit yourself under the circumstances that you are so desperately trying to get away from in this whole thing. This is the direction that God follows his perspective with. He gave perspective. Where are you going? Where you know, where you come from? Where are you going? Now he gives direction. He says, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go back, and I want you to submit myself under her hands. This is the direction of a loving God to a woman that he desperately loves and that he's working in her life. Go back. And submit. You say, why in the world would God ask this of, of Hagar at this point in her life? Here's the answer. Because Sarai is the instrument that God is using in her life to shape her into the person that he is making her to be. God is using those difficult circumstances to conform her into his image and to direct her into his perfect will for her. That's the way that God has chosen to do it. And he's given Hagar an ultimatum. You can either obey and walk in my will and see my outcome. Or you can rebel and go back to Egypt and see what's going to happen to you there outside of my will. But God is going to go on to tell her, I have seen what's going on and I have a plan in all of this. This is my will for your life. When King David was running from King Saul, he wasn't King David yet. He was a fugitive at this point. And Saul was trying to kill him because he was jealous of what David would one day become. And David had an opportunity to kill Saul and to save his own life. And he would have been justified in doing it. Saul was trying to kill him. It would have been self-preservation, the most basic human instinct. And when David's right-hand man said, Hey, this is the moment. Kill him. Or let me kill him. It won't take two strikes. I'll get him on the first shot. David looked at his servant and he said, God forbid... He said, God forbid that I should put my hands on the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to do it. He might die of natural causes, or he might die in battle, or some other thing might kill him, but far be it from me that my hand would slay the Lord's anointed. Now, you look at that, and you say, wait a minute. No, 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 David, he wasn't the Lord's anointed anymore. God took his hand off of Saul. God had poured the oil on you. You're the Lord's anointed. What do you mean Saul's the Lord's anointed? He wasn't. What David recognized is that though perhaps Saul was not the anointed of the Lord in a kingly majestic sense anymore, listen, he very much was the anointed of the Lord in David's life to produce in David the type of character he needed to be a king after God's own heart. And for David to kill Saul for his own comfort or relief, would be to short-circuit the work that God was doing to prepare him for his future. And what God is saying to Hagar here is he's saying, listen, go back, because this is my will for your life to prepare you for what your future is going to be, a good future, as he's about to tell her in just a moment. But as it relates to you and I, God sometimes puts us in extremely difficult and perilous circumstances for the sake of performing and perfecting his perfect will in our lives. And for us to say, I would rather walk outside of the will of God because it's easier than inside the will of God when it hurts is a foolishness on our behalf, on our part. Because we're missing out on what God wants to do for us to prepare us in our future. Go back and submit yourself to her. He gives her direction and then he follows it by giving her insight. He tells her what's going to happen. Verse 10. It says, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, you are with child. Now mark that in your Bible. Because what God is doing in this instance right now by giving Sarah this piece of information that she already knows, I'm sorry, not Sarah, but Hagar, this information, is that he is drawing the attention off of her and onto something that's bigger than her that's at stake here. Listen, Hagar, I understand that you don't like the circumstance. I understand it's uncomfortable for you, but it's not about you. You have a child, and how are you going to take care of the child in the thing that you're seeking and looking to do right now? You've got to look beyond yourself. I think that there's a whole lot of people in the modern era, the modern age, even in the modern church today, that God needs to grab a hold of and whisper this in their ear just the way he did with Hagar. Hey, what are you thinking about doing right now? Where are you thinking about going? Who are you thinking about seeing or being with? What are you thinking about and contemplating doing to your family or your spouse? Or what are you thinking about doing right now? Do you understand that there are other people at stake in this thing that you're contemplating doing right now? It's not just about you. It's not about me. This life is bigger than you and me. God's called us to serve. He's called us to die for the sake of others that they might live. It's not about you, Hagar. You're with child and you will bear a son and you will call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard thy affliction. Ishmael means God shall hear. And God says you're going to name him God shall hear because the Lord has heard your your affliction. Now, I love this here. He says I'm going to multiply his seed. I've got a plan in this and I've got a hand in all of these things that are going on right now. It's not just about you and you're going to name your son Ishmael because I see the things that you're going through and suffering right now and I am with you in it the whole thing. I have heard, I see and I'm going to work this out. Now here's the amazing thing in all of this is that this is all that Hagar needed. Once she realized and recognized that she was in the will of God, she goes back. She realizes, I can live under those circumstances if only I know that God is with me in it, that this is His will. There was a, a, a time in my life a, a while back now when I was working as a carpenter in the city. And the Lord had me working for a year and a half in a tunnel. I've told you guys the story, so I'll abbreviate it. And forgive me if you haven't heard the, the in-depth version. You get the cliff notes here, but and I was in this tunnel for a year and a half and it was the darkest season of my entire life and I felt completely abandoned by God. He had just forsaken me completely. I missed his calling and his promises and, and that through the deception of faith I had found myself in pure misery and that this was my life forever. It was a behold now nightmare, you know, for me. And on one particular day I, I called my boss and I said to him, I said, listen, this tunnel is making me suicidal and it really was. Like, it was a very, very dark place to be. And I said, please, could you just get me someone to work with me in there? Just being in there alone, Satan, he's killing me. Please, get someone. And he said, all right, I'll get you someone. I said, okay, but listen, if you don't get someone, I can't go in there by myself again. I'm not going to work. I'm going to go home. And he said, okay, I'll get you someone. You'll have someone there in the morning. And I said, thank you so much. But inside, I knew there ain't nobody coming. So sure enough, I go back the next day. And there was nobody there, and I knew no one was going to be there, and I was very cynical and sarcastic. It wasn't, you know, the the, the brightest moments of my life, my Christian life. And when there was nobody there, I called my boss, and I said, okay, there's no one here, and he didn't pick up, so I left a message. I said, I'm going home, not going in, you know, the whole thing. And meanwhile, I'm wrestling with God. Am I allowed to go home? Can I go home? What happens if I go home? Am I going to lose my job? I've got to support my family, you know, this whole thing. I'm kicking back. So I sit down in my tool bag and I open up my phone and, um, and, and there was a link on the news page I was reading to Oswald Chambers' devotional for that day. It was August 10th. I'll never forget it. And August 10th, Oswald Chambers, it talks about suffering the Christian and defending God's reputation. And I'll never forget the last two lines of what that passage said. It said this. It said that God puts us in the place where we're going to bring him the most glory. And sometimes we're completely incapable of judging where that might be. And I looked up to heaven, and in a sarcastic tone, I said to God out loud, I said, God, are you telling me that the place I'm going to bring you the most glory today is in a dark, isolated dungeon where I don't have contact with another living soul? And I heard the Holy Spirit answer swiftly, yes, that's where you're gonna bring me the most glory today. And I said, fine. I'll get in the tunnel. And I went and got in the tunnel that day and an amazing thing happened that day, not the next day, but that day, is that I had joy that entire day in the tunnel. By myself, in darkness, But there was a joy. It was the same as every other day, but there was a joy that day. Nothing changed. The only thing that changed is that I had confidence that I was in the will of God in that isolated dungeon of a tunnel. That was in August. By November of that year, God had blessed my life and pulled me out of that situation in a way that I would not have believed it had you told me it was coming. The will of God in suffering is better than the will of me, though it be anywhere else. He says in verse 12, And he will be a wild man. If you look that up in the Hebrew, you realize that the translator was much more gracious than the original language. It's literally, he'll be a wild donkey. And the idea is that he's going to be nomadic. He's going to wander. That his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand will be against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. All of those descriptions, very much true characteristics of the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab people. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I here also looked after him that sees me? Wherefore, the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barnea. Be'er Lahairoi means the well of him who sees me. And so Hagar meets with God in this whole thing. And so this woman that we call mistreated doesn't play the victim card. But she responds to a meeting that God has with her and she goes back into the circumstances. She embraces the difficulties and amazingly in this whole chapter she gains the most. Hagar comes out on top in all this thing. Now the third character as we close out the chapter is Abram and we call him I want it now. Notice verse 15. It says that Hagar bare Abram a son and Abram called his son's name which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was 80 six years old, when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Abram bore Ishmael. Abram now has this son that came as a byproduct of his own and Sarah's own intellect and ideas. And what Ishmael, who Ishmael represents in the scripture is our fleshly attempts to try to help God out. That's what Ishmael is. And just as an aside, understand that as we look into the future of what happens with Ishmael, Ishmael is a disaster. He's a heartache for Abram and Sarah. He's a problem for their descendants. And he becomes an allegory in the Bible for our flesh. That thing that makes a mess when we intervene and try to help God in our uh, our moves. You know, you look in Galatians and you see this uh, clear. One of the worst things that can happen in the life of one of God's kids, one of us, is when we try to help God in some way to do and accomplish His will in our lives. That's a terrible thing. It's a horrible thing for us to help God. He does not need our help. Do you understand that? He doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. He's not asking for it. Our fingerprints mess everything up every time. You know, sometimes you'll watch Christian television and you'll see them say, God needs your help like He's never needed your help before. That's actually true. Because God never needed your help before. and <laughs> He doesn't need it now. You know, I remember one time I, I worked with an old Italian man who had just decades of experience to my rookieism, And he one time was working on something, and I kept making suggestions. Don't you want to do it this way? Don't you want to pull your tape measure there? Don't you want to... Do you want to check this? Do you want... And finally, he, he got upset, and he snapped, and he looked at me. And he was an old Italian guy. He looked at me, and he said, Hey! I get a pair from here up. You get a pair from here down. Got it. And I think that's what God wants to say to us oftentimes. I get paid from here up. You get paid from here down. I don't need your help. I am perfectly capable of accomplishing my will and plans for your life without you intervening and and trying to do things. It's a disaster. It's the worst thing when we try to help God, but there's an even worse thing. Worse than us trying to help God is when we help God and our plan seems to work. It comes through. Do you know that Abram is going to go 13 years now thinking that his plan is God's plan? He's going to move forward for 13 years thinking that this was the way God was going to fulfill the purpose. And he wastes 13 years thinking he's in the will of God when he's not. Now what's also bad in this whole thing, for Abram and also for you and I, is that when we birth an Ishmael because we get out in front of God, we have to live with the existence of that Ishmael and the consequences of that Ishmael in our lives. And that's what's going to happen to Abram. God doesn't need our help. Listen, church. God doesn't need our help. Do you know that? He doesn't need our help. You say, well, how long do I have to wait for God in order for his purposes to be accomplished in my life? Because I feel like if I don't do something, I'm going to explode. So what do I do when I'm waiting for God to come through on a promise and it's taking way longer than I think that it should? We're called to trust Him. We're called to endure. We're called to be patient. You say, well, what if God's forgotten me? Listen, God hasn't forgotten you. You say, well, what if I fall asleep on the thing and God brings the opportunity and I miss it? It's not there when I look for it. The shepherd is never dependent on the IQ of the sheep. He's going to make sure that he fulfills the plan that he has for your life. It's just who God is. It's what he does. I was reading Psalm 16 in my devotions this week. And in Psalm 16, David says something very interesting in verses 1 and 2. He says, preserve me, O God, for I've put my trust in you. And then he says this in verse 2. He says, my soul said unto the Lord, you are my Lord. David reminds himself that I have committed my mind, my emotions, and my will to your lordship. You are the Lord of my life. And then he complains about his afflictions for a couple of verses. But then he says, in reminded to himself, down in verse 5 of the same psalm, he says this. And listen, it's the word for some of you here tonight. He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. The cup speaking of the life you maintain my lot the lines are fallen unto me that is the borders have fallen unto me in pleasant places Yea, I have a goodly heritage now listen to the truth of that as it relates to you and I we have made him our Lord which means that we have committed all of what we are to him the timing of things the circumstances of things the people that surround us in our lives, the afflictions and the troubles and the trials, the plan and the promises that we're ultimately waiting to be fulfilled in our life, when we make him Lord, we're making him Lord over all of those things. And what God says to us is that he maintains our lot. Meaning the expected end that he has purposed and planned for every one of us, he is capable of bringing that to pass in our lives. He maintains that lot. The lines, the borders of it are in pleasant places. It's better than what you can do for yourself with your best efforts or even your best imaginations. He's going to maintain it. And therefore, I can put my trust in him completely because he's good, because he's faithful, because he's capable, because he is able, because he measures size in atoms and strings, and he measures time in nanoseconds, and he doesn't waste anything, he's never too late, he's calculated in everything that he does, and he is perfect and good. And therefore, we can trust him with the promises in our lives. Ishmael's are a disaster. And Abraham brings one forth here. And I pray that we might learn the lesson from Abram. And that we not, might not fall victim to the same thing in our lives. And so the worship team can come. We close the chapter. We have two women and one man in this chapter. We have impatience. Sarai. She says, I want it now. The Lord has restrained. I'm discouraged. Psalm 27. If that's you here tonight, if you're impatient, tired of waiting for God, David says, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait. I say on the Lord. Wait. It's worth it. Yes, it requires patience and faith. Yes, it can be a struggle and it's difficult. But wait on the Lord. I had fainted except I had believed. You might be tonight here. You might be affliction. You might be mistreated, the second character in the study. Understand this if that's you. God is shaping He's using what's afflicting you to lead, to provide, to shape. James chapter 1, James says, Let patience have her perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The thing that's afflicting you, the thing that's mistreating you, it's working something in you and be patient and wait for God to finish his work. And you might be tonight, you might be Abram, I want it now. You can't have it now. That's it. You can have it when God is ready to give it. That's when you can have it. And until then, any attempt of yours to try to take it is going to make a big mess. And it won't have the outcome that you have. But know this. God has not forgotten you. The lines have fallen to you and to me in pleasant places. He upholds our portion. May He give us wisdom. May He make us understand. May He give us even a vision, a glimpse of the eternity that awaits us. That we might run with purpose, that we might run with patience, that we might hold faith, that we might obtain promises. Above all, that we might please Him. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. Thank You for teaching us these things. Thank You so much, Lord, that You weren't angry with any of these characters. You were laying down their story as a testimony to teach us. And we would ask tonight, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to see ourselves in this text and help us to see our present circumstances through its lens. And we pray that you would give us perspective. That you would give us clear instruction as to what we're to do right now. And that you would help us to see the big picture of what's to come. We trust you for these things. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand.